0: Well, Father, thank you for this day, a day you've made. And I really pray in the words of the psalmist that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And I, I just pray, Lord, let my words be forgotten and Holy Spirit, would you apply the living word of God to all of our hearts and let us be changed into the likeness of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, for those of you who uh, joined us a week ago, we began a new series from the Old Testament book of Daniel. And I want to bring uh, this morning uh, the second instalment of that. And we're particularly focusing on the whole of Daniel chapter 2. Um, and we didn't want to read a whole chapter, so we've got just a few verses in the middle, but I'm going to refer to the whole chapter, so you may want to have your Bible open um, or turn to it in whichever way you do. And uh, in this uh, strangest of times that the whole planet is experiencing, you know, there's a sense in which all of us have been exiled uh, from what is normal and familiar and we find ourselves now in our own households, in our own homes, uh, and yet waiting, waiting on God. And as we do that, we're turning to the book of Daniel to try and glean how God works in a context where the people of God are exiled, what God wants to reveal about himself as we wait on God through the lens of Jesus and the kingdom that we've inherited, uh, and uh, in such a way that we might be ready, that we might be prepared for all that is ahead of us uh, on the other side. And, uh, and the kind of uh, idea that I want to uh, open up for us today is really about the role that the church plays in society. And we're going to use how Daniel uh, has to live out his experience In uh, the life of a foreign, what was for Daniel, oppressive culture that he found himself exiled into, Uh, and really I want us to look at not only the role the church plays in society, but the role that you and I play in our daily lives as individuals uh, amidst the communities we live in where many, many people today are not people of faith. And What does that look like and what can we learn? And really I want to come at this from the angle of looking at this from the book of Acts. And if you're part of the Chanctonbury community, you will have been joining us over the last month as we've been reading together through the book of Acts. And what I'm always blown away by when you hit chapter eight of the book of Acts, which is really the history of how the church spread from the person of Jesus, who gave this to his apostles, Uh, to the birthing of the first church and then how Christianity and the following of Jesus, the way, as the book of Acts calls it, spreads right throughout the Roman Empire and right throughout the Mediterranean world. And what you find in in Acts chapter 8 is the church is scattered and as individuals they find themselves flung away from the church leaders, away from the, the... central place of Christian, brand new Christian worship in Jerusalem, and they're scattered right throughout the Mediterranean world. And what happens is that everywhere they are scattered as individuals, perhaps in families, they take the gospel of the kingdom, and it grows and spreads and embeds in such a way that within three short centuries, Constantine, who is the Roman Emperor in the fourth century, 300 years later, he institutionalizes Christianity as the predominant faith right across the Roman Empire, uh, what was known as the civilized world in that time. So, here's my question. For us, exiled in our own homes, if we were in Acts 8, do we know God enough that if we were flung out into the middle of nowhere, do we walk with God in such a powerfully transformative way that we are with him able to prevail and transform the surroundings that we find ourselves in. And, And I bring us to that picture because we find ourselves in the 21st century, in British society, I would say as the church, Exiled to the fringe of how our culture operates. I wouldn't say and I'm not bashing the church. I wouldn't say we are really prevailing in our culture. And so I think there's something for us to recapture from the life of the first church and what we're going to look at is from the life of Daniel about you know 500 600 years before Jesus was born that we can recapture in our lives so that we might truly be used by God to be transformative to those around us. Um, And um, uh, where I'm going to go and where I'm going to finish today is by bringing to us a recapturing of the spiritual principle of inheritance the spiritual principle of inheritance. And I'll I'll show you how we're gonna find that from Daniel 2 and how we're gonna land that towards the end of this. Uh, But there is a few questions I just wanted to just bring out for us that we probably all have and many of us ask of ourselves and who many people quite often ask of of me. And, And the first question very simply and obviously is, in British society, shouldn't religion be simply a private thing? You know, if religion is essentially about you and your God, then this whole kind of language of transforming society, you know, its not it faith essentially just a personal private thing? And, you know, why should we enforce our beliefs on other people? So that's the sort of first question I'm gonna pick up. Secondly, if we find the the grounds for should faith be something which is shared and is passed on, then what kind of role should the church play in society? And making this more applicable to us as individuals, uh, as well as uh, God's church, how, how should I be? What role should I play in my community, in my workplace? in my everyday surroundings. Uh, Thirdly, how should a believer, a person of faith, relate to governmental or civic authority? If we are following the Lord Jesus, if we're following the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, if we're citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven, then what's our interaction with earthly governmental civic authority? And the final question, I'll I'll touch on this, and we'll get into it a bit later in our Daniel series, um, which is a really interesting one, which is how do you possibly differentiate between spiritual experiences that people have today? So how do you you differentiate, how do you legitimise, how do you pick your way through all of the spiritual experiences that people have, whether they be pagan, new age, other religions, or even the spiritual experiences that we have. How do we how do we find a grounding for those uh, and pick our way through today? So do they sound like interesting questions to pick, uh, to unpack? They do to me. So anyway, you can't say no. So I'm just going to keep going. So here we go. Um, so let's pick up our first um, question really today, um, which I unpacked for us, which is which is really something that I think is real for us in British society and in British culture, which is should faith, should religion really be a private thing? A thing for us as individuals to contemplate and then to make our own individual assessment about and then to practise in such a way which is not too dominant on other people. And I think you know, this is a very real question for us as upstanding British people Uh, But it's a very real question, I think, because in in our culture, in the 21st century, um, as British people, we naturally don't like being too forceful with others and we like being respecters of others' beliefs. And the problem (laughs) with this, when you're a Christian, is, uh, is kind of threefold. Number one, the problem is, is that if you think about it, if God really is real and you come to the place where you accept that he's real and calls you to worship him through Jesus, then really that marks you out a bit differently to the rest of British society in, along the lines of if God is real, then surely you'd want to let other people know about it you know because if he is real and you found that he is real in your life then it's a natural overflow to want to share the reality of him with others now you of course you would want to share that in an honoring way and not in a an annoying way but you do want to share that wouldn't you in fact as a christian it gets sharper than this because at the heart of christian faith is the transfer of the expression of faith from Jesus, who was expressing who the invisible God is on the earth. He was showing us John chapter one, the heart of the father. He was revealing to us the invisible God in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. But not only that, when he ascended to heaven, he commanded us to go and share that with others. And so the reason Christians are excited about sharing about their faith is not only because it's real, but also because Jesus said, listen guys, I'm going up to heaven, you are my envoys, you are my ambassadors, you are my mouthpiece, my body on earth, to use some of the Bible's language of this, and you are the ones through which I'm gonna reveal the invisible nature and character and reality of God to the whole human race. Um, thirdly, We want to share about him because he's so so wonderful and I think this is the thing that marks out followers of Jesus from adherents of every other religion and philosophy on the planet is that we're not just forced to worship because we found God to be real we love him. And we find when we, when we come near to the presence of God, he's just so wonderful, he's so full of love, he's so full of light, he's so kind, he's so full of mercy, he's so full of peace, that we just wanna share it, because why wouldn't you? It'd be like finding, you know, it's a bit like you know, when I got married and I, and I found the love of my life, I invited everybody because I just wanna tell everybody that I love this girl, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life with her. And it's a natural thing to want to celebrate and share that with others around you. So I, I hope that gives you, you know, some grounding for why um, you know, we would, as people of faith, want to share our faith. And so that leads us to the second question, which is, so, so what kind of role should the church play in society? And what kind of role should I Embody in my community as I live out my faith and live out my life, and and really just to sort of caricature this, um, really down down the ages, the church has kind of fallen in one of three camps a lot of the time, and um, the first sort of caricature that I'm going to give um, is the caricature of the church being a bit of a Noah's Ark. Noah, of course got all the animals, and got his family, and the rains came down, the earth was destroyed, everyone perished, and Noah sailed above it all, and sailed above all the chaos below him until he was brought to dry land. And, you know, I would say that, that kind of coming away from society floating above it all, not being involved in the swirling chaos below, has kind of caricatured or characterized various church movements and church streams down the ages. And uh, one example would be the Plymouth Brethren. And they, they basically looked at the world in the heart of their expression of Christian understanding and they looked at the world and they basically said, do you know what? The world is just chaotic. The world is full of evil. We are going to withdraw. We're going to rise above it all and form our own society where, which is largely closed and where we are going to try and live out as best we can in this dark age Christianity as we understand it and pray that we will get to dry land, we will get to heaven as we're faithful to God. And, you know, please hear me, I'm not bashing the brethren because my grandfather came out of the brethren and so, you know, I have a, a, you know, an inheritance and a a debt that I owe to them, but I'm just caricaturing that that's one response to society, that we're going to pull away, we're going to form our own, we're going to try and rise above it all and we're going to try and stay faithful to the end of our lives. That isn't what we find in Daniel and it isn't what we find in Jesus. The second response is, I'm gonna caricature um, as being the iron and clay response. And we find iron and clay brought to us in Daniel 2. And really what that approach has been uh, is really about taking the best of God and mixing it with the best of culture. And there ends up being a mixture as the church, and for those who promote this, the church would learn and grow in age to age and draw on some of the best of philosophy, the best of enlightenment thinking, the best of scientific progress, and that the church might become more like the culture within which it finds itself by mixing its uh, message and its expression with society. So a good example of this would be, um, one expression would be liberal Anglicanism. And, uh, you know, perhaps particularly in the American Episcopalian church and in parts of the Scottish uh, Episcopal church, um, there's there's this kind of, at heart, a good desire to make the church appealing to culture, and yet the method of doing so is by bringing culture into the church in order to try and make the church more appealing and accessible and what happens is you end up having a syncretizing of the gospel and what happens is the thing that I just I find difficult which is where the world looks on and looks at the church and says you're just like us. And it isn't what Jesus uh, called us to and it isn't the right way of approaching society and culture. The third way, um, Noah's Ark is one approach, iron and clay is one approach, second approach. The third approach is really what I'm going to characterize as first century theocracy. Which, do you remember the disciples of Jesus were like, Jesus, when are you going to kick the Romans out of Israel? Restore the land to us. And the third approach which you see in some movements is let's kick all of the um, bad people out of our land. Let's let God rule this society and we're going to essentially become a political nation under God and express this society as best we can with God as the leader. And we're gonna express that in a political, geo, geopolitical manner. And again, it's not the right approach, which I think innately we know. And it's not the right approach because Jesus, when he's talking about what the kingdom's like, he talks about the kingdom being like yeast in the whole dough. And there will come a day where there is a theocracy on earth when Jesus returns and he does away with evil, he does away with the personification of demonic forces, he does away with all all suffering and he establishes the new heavens and the new earth once and for all. But until then Jesus says the kingdom is like yeast in the dough. And um, so anyway I'm getting into what is the right approach. Um, so none of those three approaches are what I believe we find in Daniel chapter 2 nor what Jesus teaches us, and that we see lived out in the life of the, of, the, of the first church, nor what God is calling us to. So what do we find in Daniel chapter two? And um, let's now turn to that. Now in Daniel chapter two, what we find is what we're gonna have repeated over the next few chapters, which is a test Do you remember in chapter one the test was uh, Daniel and his pals only ate vegetables and drank water and the test was will they be better off at the end of their test by not eating the royal rations than those who will eat Babylonian food, bring it into themselves and we find Daniel as he trusts God passing the test with flying colours. Well here we have in chapter two another test and what happens in Daniel 2 is what we find is the king of Babylon Nebuchadnezzar in the second year of his reign is disturbed he's troubled verse 2 in chapter 2 of Daniel he's disturbed by dreams he's getting and so the king who is pretty chaotic pretty out of control you know pretty uh you know, there's no no checks and balances on his unlimited power. So for any of us who live and work under quite manic leadership, I think there's some great resources for us to dig into here. But what we find is Nebuchadnezzar gives a test to all of his enchanters, all of his sorcerers, all of his um, kind of fortune tellers, all of his so-called wise people, and he basically gathers them together, and he basically says interpret the dream that i've had and they respond to him and they said none of us can tell the dream that you've had tell us the dream and then we'll tell you the interpretation the king loses temper and he says again it, then he comes to the magicians and the fortune tellers and he he basically makes an edict and he says if you don't tell me the interpretation of my dream i'm going to put every magician every fortune teller every soothsayer every magician every wise person to death and so they come to him again and say my king you know no one can possibly do what you're asking us to do tell us the dream and we'll interpret it and Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely steaming at this point Um, but it's interesting that the magicians bring out what is going to be the answer to the problem and they bring out um, in verse 10 By answering Nebuchadnezzar, they basically say in verse 10 of chapter 2, there is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. There's no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. Nebuchadnezzar brings the magicians to the place where the supernatural has to step in. They say back to him, no one can possibly tell you what your dream is. How can we possibly find an interpretation? They say the answer to the problem, as we're going to find in Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar is steaming now. And he basically says, take these guys away, put them all to death. And at this point, Daniel hears about it. And uh, the guy who's going to execute all of the magicians, all of the fortune tellers, uh, is a guy called Ariok. And he starts rounding up the guys to execute them on behalf of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on? Verse 15. And he says, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And Ariok explains the matter to Daniel. And Daniel basically goes back to Ariok and requests that the king gives him time to tell him the interpretation. And then Daniel goes to his room gathers his mates, and he basically presses into the Lord for what the dream is and what the interpretation is. Now, let's back up for a minute and just think about the question of what is the right approach of a believer to the community? Or what is the right approach for the people of God to the society in which they find themselves? What does Daniel not do? What Daniel doesn't do Bearing in mind he's serving within an oppressive regime, he's serving in captivity, he's been commandeered by Babylon and taken to a foreign land, he's been taken into captivity, what does he not do? What Daniel doesn't do is send the word out subversively to all of the Hebrews in captivity and say, come on, things are getting dangerous, let's lead a rebellion, let's rise up let's take over the Babylonians, let's, let's cause a mutiny, let's cause a revolt, let's overthrow the Babylonians and storm the gates and, um, and take them on. No, he doesn't lead a rebellion, nor does Daniel quiver and assimilate to the culture, as we'll find out in this passage. He doesn't have a um, theocracy approach, first century approach, he doesn't Uh, because he can't withdraw Noah's Ark style and he doesn't iron and clay, what does he do? Daniel knows what he's meant to be doing in this strange time because he knows God's will. And he knows God's will because just before they were taken into captivity, the prophetic voice told them what they were meant to be doing when they would, would be taken captive by the Babylonians, and you can read about this in Jeremiah chapter 29. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah 20, chapter 29 should be known by every Christian person out there, because uh, we've all heard of those wonderful verses in Jeremiah 29 11, where we're reminded that God loves us, He's for us, and He's got a plan for our lives is a very famous Old Testament verse that we apply to the nature of God that he has a plan for our lives. But the context of Jeremiah 29 is Jeremiah is telling the people of God just just before they're taken into exile in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar In chapter 29, Jeremiah essentially says in verses 7 to 14, when you are taken captive, what I want you to do is serve the the people there, seek the welfare of the city, live for its blessing, and know that I will prosper you in that place. I will protect you. And I have a plan through this, and I will bring you out of the other side of exile into the land that I have for you. So Daniel knows the mind and will of God on what he's meant to be doing in exile so that when he is thrust into captivity, he doesn't rebel, he doesn't assimilate to the culture, but he serves it and he seeks its welfare. And he does this in such a way that we find he not only looks after number one, looks after himself, not only looks after his three brothers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he not only cares for them, but he also, and this is stunning, he also cares for the other, we might say, demonic, evil magicians, fortune tellers, soothsayers, wise people in the land of Babylon and he serves Nebuchadnezzar and we're going to find out in two weeks time when we hit chapter four just how powerful Daniel's serving of Nebuch- Nebuchadnezzar is but we see it in this chapter if you skip down um, to um, verse 25 of chapter, uh, chapter 2 um, chap- uh, verse 24 of chapter 2 uh, Daniel, when he's got the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and the interpretation, he basically says to Ariok, Listen, stay your hand. Don't slay the, the Babylonian magicians. Please, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king. Essentially, what he's saying is so I can save everybody and I can get us out of this test that we've been thrown into. Now, let's back up for a minute and try and look at the question of how should we be in a strange society, how should we be in 21st century modern or postmodern secularizing Western culture? I believe that we should in the same way, like Daniel, find a way of living for the blessing and welfare of our culture whilst staying true to the God that we serve and knowing that as we do that, God vindicates and raises us up so that we might influence and be like the yeast in the batch, ensuring that we are permeating our culture and those around us with the yeast of the kingdom. But we'll we'll find out a bit more um, as uh, as we get into this. So, what does Daniel do? Daniel goes into Nebuchadnezzar and he reveals his dream and the dream very simply that Nebuchadnezzar has been disturbed about is essentially of a massive statue. The statue's head is of gold, its arms of silver, the lower part is of bronze and the feet are made of iron and the toes are a mixture of iron and clay and nebuchadnezzar has been freaked out because he knows this is about his future and he knows this is significant and he's troubled and he's fearful and daniel shares this dream with him and then he gives him the interpretation and the interpretation very simply um, applies to nebuchadnezzar in the sense of nebuchadnezzar it represents the gold at the top of the statue the head of the statue And then Daniel basically goes on to say, uh, so Nebuchadnezzar represents, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom represents the gold at the top of the statue. Then Daniel goes on uh, towards the end of chapter two in um, verses uh, kind of 36 to 43. He basically goes on to say that your kingdom's like the gold, then there's gonna be a dodgy kingdom that he doesn't refer to much, an inferior kingdom. Then there'll come the bronze kingdom, which will be stronger. Then there'll be another fourth kingdom, which will be really powerful, but that kingdom will be a mixture of strength and weakness. It will be strong and it will be brittle because it will be mixed with, um, be the, which is what the mixture of iron and clay represents. And all of those kingdoms, after the fourth kingdom will be overcome and replaced by a rock which is going to smash the iron and clay and that's going to represent the kingdom of the god most high who will establish his kingdom and it will outlast all of the other kingdoms and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. grow. so what do we make of this number one we can apply this to the four kings under whom daniel serves Daniel serves now Nebuchadnezzar. We're gonna find him serving briefly uh, Belshazzar, uh, who is quickly replaced, who is dodgy and bad. Um, then Darius arises and we find some, you know, some really good things and Daniel's used to help uh, in his kingdom and, and he has a, a really strong relationship with Daniel. Then we find the fourth kingdom Daniel serves under Uh, being that of Cyrus the Mede and uh, after that time Babylon is overrun the people of God return from captivity to rebuild their land to rebuild Jerusalem and then we have about 400 years before uh, our chief cornerstone Jesus Christ the rock himself who arrives and is born and releases the kingdom. Some have sought to align these four kingdoms with four periods of time uh, referring to um, you know the end times and we're going to get a bit to that towards the end of Daniel and I'm not going to get sidetracked with that now uh, but that gives you a bit of um, you know what Daniel gives back to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's reaction is he is astounded and he falls on his knees and what we find in verses 40. Um, for uh, 46 to 49 is that Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face, he worships Daniel, he acknowledges Daniel's king and then he appoints Daniel and his three comrades, his three brothers, Shadrach, Shadrach Meshach and Abednego to influential positions in the kingdom because he recognizes God is working, the God, the most high God is working through Daniel. Now, check this out for a minute. I just want to put us for a moment in the shoes of Daniel and then put us in the shoes of Nebuchadnezzar. Firstly, what can we learn about how Daniel lives this out in a strange, oppressive kingdom? Well, the first is something we learn within Daniel's prayer in verses 20 to 23. And the first thing is we've we, we mentioned already Daniel knows the will of God and the heart of God um, about how he should be in this time serving the city he's in and how he's to carry himself in that period. Uh, but what we also find again is that Daniel knows that God reigns, that God is overall in this and that God is going to restore and redeem however oppressive and however dark these times are. Look at this. Verse 22, Daniel prays, you are the God, blessed be your name, verse 22, who reveals deep and hidden things, who knows what is in darkness, and whom light dwells within. God is the God who knows all evil, who reigns over all evil, and who within whom dwells wonderful, wonderful light. You know, I have this every time I interact with someone who, you know, not from a rational mindset, but from like a new age or a pagan or a very spiritual mindset throws at me. Well, well, how can all the stuff you say of spiritual experience, how do you know that's better than the stuff we're into? And what you find in Daniel and what you find in the Holy Spirit and in the New Testament is that godly spiritual experience always brings a clarity and brings an order and brings a light and brings a peace that all of the fortune telling and all of the other kind of other ways that people try and lock into spiritual things without jesus find themselves sort of you know fumbling around the sort of spiritual chaos but what you find in daniel is boom. Compared to all the other magicians, he has absolute clarity on Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation. And because he is suddenly locked into the God who reigns over darkness, for whom light dwells within, and he is able to bring crystal clear clarity in that context. Let me give you a New Testament example. Do you remember Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8? Uh, Simon the sorcerer, he's clearly got some spiritual prowess because he's practising magic in Samaria. And suddenly, Philip comes along and absolutely blows him out of the water because he's delivering people of demons, he's healing the sick. And Simon the sorcerer is astounded at not only his clarity and his precision, but the level of power released. I'm just telling you, God needs to awaken spiritual authority in the things that people are groping for in spiritualized you know um kind of murky you know new agey you know pagan you know magical expressions of this because we have the living God who locks us in to the God over all of this and this marks Daniel out his clarity and his precision and it needs to mark us out And it shouldn't surprise us, because in the age of the spirit that we live in, Acts 2, we're the ones who dream dreams, and we're the ones who see visions, and we're the ones who have the gifts of the spirit to bring knowledge which we shouldn't really have, and to bring insight which we shouldn't really have, and to bring wisdom from heaven. So here we go, and I mean, I haven't really got the time to go into some examples of this, but hey, let's just get into this. and know that God is the source of all light and he you know I I think I said a week ago I can't get my head around God releasing coronavirus because every time I get into the presence of God just life streams from him not death (laughs) he's the one who releases life in all its fullness not the one who steals kills and destroys so there we go anyway we digress um anyway Daniel brings clarity in this. Daniel trusts in God's faithful deliverance, but listen, listen to what's going on in the passage. Daniel never softens his bold declaration that God, the Most High God, Daniel's God, is the one behind all of this and the one who is gonna help Nebuchadnezzar and who is the one behind Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and the one who reigns and rules over all. Listen, if we were thrust in a manic leadership environment, if we were in a, a crazy you know, business environment led by chaotic leadership or oppressive leadership, it would be very tempting, wouldn't it, to soften the way that we presented what God was saying to dial it down a bit for fear of what might happen to us don't you think well what Daniel doesn't even though Nebuchadnezzar has threatened the execution of all of the you know good for nothing magicians and enchanters that were operating in his kingdom including Daniel Daniel is full on. Daniel basically says to Nebuchadnezzar um, in uh, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar, there's no wise man who could have possibly told you what your dream was. And please don't misinterpret that I am wiser than all the rest. Because uh, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has been disclosing to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen at the end of your days. And then he goes on to say, all the way through, Daniel points to God unashamedly, boldly, authoritatively. He's so upfront that God is behind this. He is serving God. And what what I want us to see in this is in a test laid out by a manic oppressive king, Daniel In response to this test number one knows God is in charge number one knows that God has the answers but number three never shirks from being very unashamed about the God that he's serving and giving honour and glory and declaring him to the face of the oppressive King that he's serving and I, I just want to sort of bring this to us now to, um, to really, I guess, challenge us. Why, why doesn't the church prevail in British society? Why have we lost our voice? And, and even wh- why, let, let's apply this, why often are we not proclaiming the gospel in our lives? You know, why, why are we not sharing Jesus more fully. And the honest answer, if we were being really honest, is because we're afraid of what people think of us. And we're afraid, when these tests come, you know, do you have these tests in your life where someone will turn to you and say, why are you like you are? Why do you go to church? Or why do you live like this? And so sometimes, you know, in the face of these tests, do you ever miss them? and not live up to the test. And, and, I, and I think you know, very often in our, in our culture, we are not living under an oppressive regime where if we get this wrong, we will be executed. There are some people of faith around the world who do live in that, but we don't. But we live in an oppressive culture where the seduction of comfort and safety and being well respected and being, being part of everybody else seduces our hearts and makes us afraid of the conflict that inevitably can come when we say no do you know what the reason i live my life is because i follow jesus simple as that the reason i'm not doing what you do is because i follow my god who is jesus and i'm following him and the reason we're sometimes reticent to say that is because we don't like offending people and we're afraid of being rejected and we're afraid of what people think of us. I'm, I'm not you know, like condemning anybody. Do you, do you recognise that within, within your hearts and within my heart? Uh, and I think, do you know what? If, if the gospel is ever to spread in our day and age, if, if there's ever to be a revival, do you know what? It's not going to be a revival where everybody suddenly listens to my sermons every week. that isn't how the gospel spreads there's going to be a revival where you and i in our daily lives on monday to saturday are living out powerfully supernaturally like daniel helping people in the confusion of 21st century life where you and i take the daily opportunities where tests are presented to us and we say do you know what jesus is the answer well, Jesus is the one that I found, and Jesus is the one who can bring you all of the life, all of the peace, all of the joy, all of the hope that you are like looking for behind all of the the kind of searching that you're you're finding yourselves in, and even when people aren't searching, sometimes we just need to be say we just need to say, Do you know what, guys, Jesus could fix that if you let him. <laughs> you know, I I, I love how. Uh, I love how Paul in, in the book of Acts is so provocative at times. He's, he's so fed up of the woman who's plaguing him in Philippi. Do you remember? He's so, he gets so annoyed with her just following him around and, and, and just being noisy. that he turns around and he's like, demon, come out. <laughs> and, and then he just carries on his way. <laughs> but that causes chaos in the city. But look, sometimes these tests and sometimes conflict lead to these moments where everything opens up and I sometimes think in the church today we're not ready for conflict because what happens is someone gets a little bit upset think about Philippi and what I've just described Paul gets arrested and put in prison but what happens what happens Paul's in prison what is he he's not like oh no I did the wrong thing I testified in the wrong way I shared my testimony in the wrong manner I did you know I did the Paul's worshipping in the stocks in prison. Paul and Silas are basically like, we're in prison, we are going to like rip it up. We're going to declare the praises of God. And they worship so loud, all of heaven hears, and an earthquake rips through the prison. What does Paul do? He doesn't say, right, here's our time, guys. Let's cause a revolt in Philippi. Let's escape now. No, Paul does what Daniel does, and he seeks the welfare of the jailer and he just carries on the worship party. <laughs> the prison doors have been opened and Paul's like, I can't, we're just like getting into, you know, an earthen with arms high and hearts abandoned. And he just carries on worshiping. Just rips out his favorite Hillsong, his favorite Bethel track. And he just rips it out, you know, Luke and Claire style. And he just carries on worshiping. And what happens, the jailer goes, and he's like, why haven't you escaped? What's gone on? There's been an earthquake, what is go- what must I do to be saved? And what we find through this is that Philippi becomes one of the one of the most treasured places in Paul's heart, but Philippi becomes one of the key centers of Christianity as the faith spreads. And you know, sometimes I think because we are knitted into the seduction of comfort and safety and people pleasing in our culture. God just wants to disrupt that and get us ready to boldly and authoritatively proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and not be afraid of what people will think of us and recognise that life offers us tests all the time and God is calling us to face them like Daniel did and proclaim the name of Jesus time after time in our daily lives and trust the results to the rest. So, Um, Daniel does that time and again and God's protection and vindication and deliverance are upon him and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this. There's all sorts of chaos that unfolds around him as we'll read about in other chapters but God's faithful deliverance is upon him and you know as we as we learn to declare God powerfully but gently but authoritatively and to take the opportunities God gives us then I think we can trust the results to God as we serve in our communities as we serve in our society today and do you know what in terms of what role should the church be playing in society we shouldn't be reigning and ruling society as a theocracy but we should have a voice and we shouldn't be afraid and we shouldn't we shouldn't be arrogant and bullish and superior but we should be authoritative And we should have wisdom and we should have supernatural power in order to live out powerfully and compellingly in our day. But anyway, that's what we learn from the life of Daniel. It's what Jesus brings to us. Jesus says, doesn't he? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Romans 13. Honor your civic rulers, but hey, recognize that there's an unshakable kingdom behind all this who really has the affections of our hearts. I want to finish by looking really just briefly at the role of Nebuchadnezzar and then the role of spiritual inheritance. And what happens is Daniel brings the the dream and the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar and he gives it to him and, and he says to Nebuchadnezzar something prophetic of the church, I believe. He says, you to whom the kingdom has been given in, let me just give you the verse for that, uh, just so we can, um, you, O king, verse 37 of chapter two, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And what happens for Nebuchadnezzar is he is ruling his kingdom, he gets the dream interpretation from Daniel, he bows down and he worships Daniel and he says to Daniel in verse 47, uh, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Nebuchadnezzar is astounded, he worships Daniel, he gives honour to Daniel's God, but he doesn't own it for himself deep inside his heart. And what's completely ironic, having had a dream interpreted by Daniel, which starts with a gold statue, representing him and his kingdom is in chapter three he builds a gold statue and (laughs) calls the whole nation to exercise idolatrous worship towards it so what happens is nebuchadnezzar is astonished and he bows down to daniel but he doesn't at this moment in time own it for himself but we'll get to that in chapter four and in chapter four, I'm gonna do a part two to this about the role of church in society, which is, and uh, my title in, in chapter four is gonna be, how do you transform the identity of an environment? And how do you transform the identity of a nation? But we'll get to that in a couple of weeks uh, once we've got to chapter three. But the irony is that it doesn't go into Nebuchadnezzar um, Uh, even though Nebuchadnezzar has been pre-warned prophetically and even though Nebuchadnezzar has direct instruction from God through Daniel. But listen, here's how I want to sort of end this. Let's put ourselves in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. All of us have a kingdom and the kingdom is the kingdom of our lives. You know, All of us live with decisions to make with um, ideas that we have with daily tasks that we have to fulfill and daily authority that we execute within our daily lives. A kingdom is where the king is at the center and his ways are fully displayed throughout that kingdom and you and I are kings of our own households we live in a kingdom and one of the one of the reasons that i think in, in western and certainly in british society that the church isn't driving forward with a, a fearless honorable proclamation of the king of kings and lord of lords jesus and one of the reasons we're not prevailing in 21st century society is because I think the kingdom within which we operate at times hasn't been uprooted enough and transferred into the kingdom that Jesus has won for us. We are fearful of what people think of us. We do live comfortable lives. You know, if you travel to the majority world, to countries that are you know, less economically well off than the Western world, you will find very often a greater dependency on God, partly because they have to. And the great seductor, the great almost Satan that exists for us who live in highly technologized, able, powerful, intelligent, connected, influential Western society is the seduction of being the God of ourselves and living lives according to the idols of our own culture, lives of comfort, lives of ease, lives where we are in charge. And what happens is that Jesus Christ came on the scene to find us, to win us by the cross, to launch a new kingdom through the resurrection through ascending to heaven so that now even now sat at God's right hand he can release not only authority to us but power seated at the right hand of God and intercede for us. But he has done the same thing that Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. You, us, to whom has been given a kingdom of glory and power and might. What's happened in Jesus is that we have been transferred into the kingdom of heaven. But what happens is very often, we allow that to be good for others and don't go into our own hearts deeply enough to uproot the things in our culture that cling to our lives. This is a time Where the gospel needs to transfer into our households and into our lives so that we are not like Nebuchadnezzar, appreciative of the role models in our church that we have, loving Jim Waddell, you know, loving, you know, um, Nikki Gumbel or Bill Johnson or whoever we esteem, loving our interns. But you and I, if we were scattered, has this gone into our hearts enough and have we untethered enough from the idols within which our culture clings to that we really have come into the kingdom and we have said, do you know what? I am dying to what people think of me once and for all. I am dying to, to, to whenever conflict arises i'm not going to suddenly go into my shell because i if i know that i'm in step with god i'm going to proclaim this fully whatever and cast myself on god's mercies have we untethered enough from the kingdom of ourselves and brought us fully through repentance of our minds and our hearts through dying to ourselves so that we can really live out the kingdom of heaven because the, you see, the kingdom of heaven operates like this. Jesus said, if you, wanna, if you wanna enter the kingdom, if you wanna find life, you've gotta lose it. Whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross daily and follow me and and the principle of spiritual inheritance is that we are inheritors of the kingdom we are prophetic recipients of that verse 37 in chapter 2 you to him the kingdom has been given the church has been given everything that we need 1 peter 1 you have been given you have been given peter writes to his churches all that you need for life and godliness Jesus has shared the riches of the kingdom of heaven with you and I. We have become inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. But the way that that lives out is when we die to the things in our lives that stop us allowing that kingdom to be displayed fully in our hearts. And I want to take us to... um, thinking about the spiritual principle of inheritance to how how the kingdom works in luke 15 in the parable of the two sons you know the lost son and the elder the elder brother the elder son that we find in luke 15 because you see at the center of the kingdom of heaven is the most wonderful father and the most wonderful loving father full of love um, who is at the center of the kingdom and who Jesus has come to reveal. But what happens um, at the end of uh, Luke chapter 15 is that the elder brother who's been outside of the father's home serving in the fields is absolutely mad and, and, and is irate with the father for slaying the fatted calf, you know the story, for the prodigal son who's returned. And the father turns to him and he says, my child, my child, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours. You are always with me and everything that I have is yours. But we had to slay the fatted calf and come inside. You see, what happens is the elder brother was always with the father. The elder brother was always with, was always able to access the inheritance that the father had for him. He was always able to access the domain or the kingdom that the father had for him. But he didn't realize it because he lived in the kingdom of his own head and the kingdom of his self. And he was outside. He chose to live outside, slaving away in the fields, in the kingdom of his own thinking, in the kingdom of his own head, in the kingdom of his own life. And the father's like, my son, my child, my daughter, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but you gotta come inside into this kingdom. And the elder brother was faced with a choice and we don't know if he did come in, but we get to choose to come in. Do you know what? God has made all of this available and he wants to use you and I to be transformers of our culture But what that means is authoritatively and boldly overcoming the tests of our daily lives, recognizing that the kingdom has been given to us, but the way we come into the kingdom is through death to self, is through taking up our cross and through dismantling the gods in our own lives, the God of ourselves, which we find from our surrounding culture. We can never transform our communities if we're afraid to share the Lord Jesus, if we're afraid of what people think of us. And this isn't to like, condemn any of us, we're all growing in this, I'm growing in this. We will never be able to transform this land in revival with the gospel of the kingdom if we don't overcome what it feels like to be uncomfortable, and when the, when the conflict comes and the kingdom of darkness just comes and throws some insults at us and we find ourselves in a test that we know God will deliver us and God will be faithful. His ways will always win out. We will never transform society if we're afraid of what people will think when we find a voice. We will never transform society if we're not prepared to lay our lives down and go further than we've ever gone before and go beyond the God of comfort that crouches at the door of our lives. So my question is, do we need to come in, into the Father's house, into the kingdom of the Son that He loves, where He has given us all riches and come away from the fields of our lives that we've been toiling in? Where, does the, where do the 21st century British societal gods and idols crouch at the door of our lives? And let's just die to them quickly and powerfully so that we can truly say, yeah, we are the ones to whom he's given the kingdom. And we're not just going to say that's awesome for those people over there. That is transformative in our lives. And we are ready because you and I, in our daily lives can get to places the church corporately can never get to. And the church corporately was always meant to get to the places where you can get to, your work colleagues, your family, your school friends, your your uni friends. The church was always meant to get to those places. Do you know how? Through you and through I in our daily lives, saying, do you know what? The God of all gods, (laughs) he's the one who has given us spiritual clarity, he's given us all of this stuff and we're very happy to proclaim and declare him. So Lord, I just wanna pray as we close now that you would uproot the gods of our lives, the gods of 21st century culture, that you would uproot them, Spirit of God, that you would cause us to come before you in repentance That you would cause us now more than ever to get ready and to honestly appraise our lives where we have partnered with the the gods of the day, the spirit of the age and the cultural idols within which we find ourselves and we've not raised you up as the king in our lives. That we would recognise that you are saying to each and every one of us, my child, you have always been with me we're never apart from you and all that you have you share with us we are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven itself and the way that we live that out is with laid down lives of surrender and crucified lives of giving everything to him so Holy Spirit please would you come and just apply this in our lives I just pray even now that you would enable this to go deep in our hearts that you would cause us to really reflect this week, that you would cause us not to come under condemnation, but to come under conviction of your Holy Spirit, that you would just cleanse us from all the things that, that just pull our hearts to other stuff and to recognize that daily, we're just gonna climb onto our cross and <laughs> daily rise from the empty grave in new life, inheritors of the kingdom, ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, And we are going to boldly go wherever you send us and you're going to get us ready in this time to live and work for your praise and glory. Mm. Mm. I just believe even now that there are some really challenging environments that God wants to just give insight and words and knowledge to show us how to do this differently not, not to be fearful, not to people please, but to be calmly authoritative in the Lord and he will show us the interpretation of those circumstances and how to live our lives in response. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, and um, I just thank you, Lord, that you are taking us deep as a church. Get us ready, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. and may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit rest upon every single person who is receiving from this and receiving from you. Would he rest on those we love and pray for? Would he rest on our communities that we love and serve? Would he rest upon this precious land that we call home and would he rest upon this nation that he is at work in so powerfully in this time? We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Changtonbury family, brothers and sisters, you're amazing. You're doing so well. <laughs> well done for how you're doing this. I just, this is such a key time. Let's press into God and let's emerge from this time so strong, so full of him that we've been changed by the power of his spirit. So would you go now To your homes to your households go in your daily walks go in your online interactions to live and to work to his praise and his glory and let's all say together in the name of Christ Amen God bless you all sending you lots of love see you soon God bless bye